Good afternoon, everybody. Our next case is Towns versus Portfolio Recovery Association or Associates LLC. And I'll note that uh, Justice Irvin is recused in this case. Uh, we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court. Mr. Chief Justice, my name is John Berkelhammer, and with Mrs. Michelle Lagori and Mr. Joseph Hammond, we represent the petitioner, Portfolio Recovery Associates. We would like to reserve seven minutes for rebuttal. This is a case of first impression under the Consumer Economic Protection Act of 2009 and raises several issues for this court's consideration. I plan to focus my argument on two of them this afternoon. First, I will discuss the Act's itemization requirements under sections 58-70-115.5, 115.6, and 155B. Second, I will discuss whether actual damages are needed before a statutory penalty can be assessed under section 130B. The first issue is whether the Consumer Economic Protection Act requires portfolio recovery to explain the charge-off balance by separating the amount of interest, fees, charges, cash advances, and purchases when it relies on the creditor-issued charge-off statement to collect only the principal balance on a charged-off credit card debt. It is our position that the Act does not require a portfolio recovery to recreate the balance of Ms. Town's credit card account over the six-year life of the card. Rather, the charge-off balance contained in a charge-off statement satisfies the requirements of the Act, and several reasons support this view. First, the statutory language of Section 155B confirms that the charge-off balance is one item. It also confirms that how that item is calculated need not be explained. Under Section 155B, to obtain a default or summary judgment, the debt buyer must provide authenticated business records that list, quote, all of the following items, close quote. Then follows a list of eight items. One of the items in the list states that the debt buyer must provide, quote, the original charge-off balance, or if the charge-off balance has not been charged off, an explanation of how the balance was calculated. Reference to a list of items and not having to explain how the charge-off balance was calculated tells us what the itemization requirement means. One, we know that the charge-off balance is an item singular unto itself. Second, the debt buyer does not have to explain how that charge-off balance was calculated because how the charge-off balance was calculated need not be explained. It satisfies the requirements of sections 115.5 and 115.6. It is one item with nothing else to itemize. And because 155b-5 does not require an explanation of how the charge-off balance was calculated, section 155b-4 is easily understood to apply to post-charge-off fees and charges. Otherwise, if the debt buyer has to list pre-charge-off fees and charges separately under Section 155b-4 or 115.5 or 115.6, where there is a charge-off balance, then we are, in fact, explaining the calculation of the charge-off balance. We are telling the consumer what is the fee, what is the charges, and explaining it to them, thereby rendering Section 155b-5 irrelevant, contrary to the rules of statutory construction. I've got that in front of me right now, Council. Section 58-70-155b-5 says uh, the original charge-off balance, or if the balance has not been charged off, an explanation of how the balance was calculated, why would, again, um, in context, an explanation not include the itemization that arguably could be said to be required? 
Well, the, the statute as read says a charge-off balance need not be explained. And if it need not be explained, then there is nothing in the act requiring to list out the fees and charges or interest and in purchases and transactions that comprise that balance. But so that otherwise we are in fact explaining a charge-off balance that the General Assembly told us does, is not necessary. If I can ask then how we explain, so, so the statute says at least all of the following items and um, number four is an itemization of charges and fees claimed to be owed. And if you're saying that number five, um, that, that we should understand number four in connection with number five as just the post-charge-off um, post balance charges and fees, then what would number, why would we need number six? Well, six is different from fees and charges. If six were the same as four, it would not have used the word additions. It didn't say post-charge-off fees and charges. It said post-charge-off additions. Those could be attorney's fees. And as we know, this act addresses more than credit card debt. It could have been fees or other items that is in a boat loan or an other consumer loan that under the contract can be added. But we are here talking about a charge-off statement or a charge-off balance. And when read under those circumstances, four, five, and six tell us in four you itemize post-charge-off fees and charges. Five says you do not have to itemize those if you have a, a charge-off balance. And six says if there are other additions, attorney's fees or things like that, then those have to be listed. And that's how all of those come together. Otherwise, we have to read one of those out of the act. Well, it seems like you're asking us to read four out of the statute because it doesn't say a post-charge-off itemization of charges and fees. It just says a blanket statement of charges and fees claimed to be owed. And it seems like the purpose of the statute is that um, consumers can understand if they, if they get um, a, a notice as required under the statute that they um, owe this amount that they can verify it, they can understand, they can figure out oh, oh, this total balance, how much of that is for things I purchased, how much of that is interest and fees, um, and, if, and if, they, if they, how will they know that? If, uh, isn't that what the purpose of the statute is? Well, the purpose of the statute is multifold. One is to regulate debt buyers, the other is for, for to give the consumer some notice. But you have to read these statutes in tandem. We are not reading Section 155B4 completely out of the Act. We are saying that it only applies to post-charge-off fees and interest. The reason we say that is because you have to read 155B to mean, for five to mean something. This is consistent with the federal regulatory framework for credit card debt, and that's what we're dealing with in this statute, in this action. That, for example, under the federal regulatory scheme, the charge-off balance in this case was the product of six years of purchases, charges, fees, interest, cash advances, and payments. Uh, and those were provided monthly to the consumer under detailed federal regulations. According to those regulations, each month the debtor receives that statement that states the prior balance, and then it adds to that prior balance any purchases, cash transactions, or fees and interest, and it subtracts from that payments. Each month, the prior month activity is rolled into a new balance under the federal regulations. And those monthly statements with that kind of itemization come from a known entity with which the debtor should be familiar in terms of whatever banking institution or other financial institution was involved in, in issuing that. When someone uh, receives something from someone such as a portfolio, an unfamiliar uh, entity for that individual, when the debt buyer comes in, why would it not, uh, since this is consumer-oriented and portfolio and others similarly situated to portfolio, would be introducing itself to the debtor to not have an itemization to introduce the fact that this is what this entity, as the debt buyer, now is expecting from you, the consumer, as we introduce ourselves to you, 
because now you owe us. Well, exactly, Justice Morgan, because in this case, portfolio recovery provided the consumer or the debtor that very statement. It provided the statement at page 66 of the record, the credit card statement from the credit issuer to Ms. Towns. It provided two of them with the complaint, with the complaint which addresses your, ex your second concern. It says, we are now the owner of the debt and we are providing you a credit card statement with which you are familiar that you have received for six years. It shows your final balance. That's all we are seeking to collect. If we look at the complaint in this case, Portfolio Recovery provided that and said, the only amount we want is this balance that's in this credit card statement. We do not want any extra fees. We do not want any extra charges. We do not want any extra interest. We do not want any attorney's fees. It said, here is the balance that we purchased from your credit issuer, and that's what we are seeking to collect under the Act. So I agree with you. If the Portfolio Recovery did not provide that and provided some other document, it may need more. But it didn't. It required a credit card statement issued from a federally regulated credit creditor under a format that is regulated by the federal government. And it provided that to the person who is receiving this for six years. And it said one thing, we want only the balance that is due. And that comports with the, the Consumer Economic Protection Act, comports with the federal regulations. And everybody knows that. I mean, if you think about what the consumer knows and what was going on at the time this act was created, this federal regulation was there as the backdrop for the General Assembly. The General Assembly used words that were be meaningful in this backdrop. We know that other states that have enacted similar statutes, as well as the federal government and the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, have done the same thing. Connecticut, Minnesota, Maine, New York, they've all looked at this and they've said, when we're going to regulate a debt buyer, we're looking at the charge-off balance plus post-charge-off fees, interest, and charges. It can't be forgotten that this regulates the debt buyer, and it's the conduct of the debt buyer that we're looking at. So let, me, let me just stop you for just a second and uh, get some clarification. Did I hear you say that um, subsection 4 was referring to post-charge-off? When, when subsection 4 is read within subsection 5 and subsection 6, when you read those three together, then subsection 4 is easily understood to be post-charge-off fees and charges. Otherwise, you are explaining the charge-off balance and rewriting <coughs> the statute by completely eliminating Section 155B. And I'm, I'm not following you. Um, it, it appears that the number four is an itemization of the charges and fees before charge-off, maybe. I mean, it doesn't say. Right, it, it before, does. before or after. Number five says the original charge-off balance, or if it hasn't been charged off, an explanation of how that was calculated. Um, and then six is any post-charge-off additions. Additions, and, that, and that's where we have to read these together, because the, the General Assembly did not say post-charge-off fees and charges. It said post-charge-off additions. So are you saying fees and charges post-charge-off are not additions? Well, I'm saying that there are different additions that the General Assembly was concerned about. For example, in 115.2 of this Act, the General Assembly makes it an unfair trade practice for the debt buyer to include additional charges that are not provided for by law. And if the, the 2009 FTC report that the plaintiff and her amici rely on similarly talks about the debt buyer including these post-charge-off fees, charges, additions, that are not that are not listed, and that's the shenanigan that this that these are trying to get to is the conduct of the debt buyer. So it, well, I'm I, just looking at the plain language of this subsection. Is there anything in subsection six that would indicate that it doesn't refer to all post charge off additional items? Well, aside from reading additions to mean fees and charges. And, uh, and, and anything else that's added onto it? Well, it could have had the General Assembly said so, but, but it didn't. I mean, well, you, what, you is it, what is it in there that indicates that it doesn't mean anything 
that's an addition. Well, one thing that we know is that when it wanted to use the term fees and charges in 155.5, it did so. We know it did so in 155.b.4, it did so. Yet when it got to 155.b.6, after previously using the words fees and charges, the General Assembly did not. It referred to additions, and those could be other things, such as, as I mentioned, attorney's fees. And again, in the non-credit non card context, there could have been charges that are acceleration charges. There could have been service fee charges. There could have been other charges that are not related to the, the issuance of credit in a credit card <clears throat> debt. And in this instance, in a credit card debt, we're looking at a balance that everybody understands, and then we're looking at what happens after it's bought by the debt buyer, because that's what the statute is regulating. Otherwise, Justice Hudson, if you read four and six, then, and to require us to explain charge off, to explain interest in charges, and to explain other additions, we are explaining the debt. We are explaining the charge-off balance, yet 155.5 says we don't have to explain the charge-off balance, which means we have to construe these three parts together. Wait, wait, wait. It, it says, no, so, section five, 5, you said, says you don't have to explain? Yeah, the exactly. 155.5 well, says if, there, if there's a charge-off, you list the charge-off balance, but if there's not a charge-off balance, then you have to explain it. But we have a charge-off balance, which means we don't have to explain it, which means that otherwise, if we do, under 155b-4 and 155b-6, we are reading 155b-5's limitation that a charge-off balance need not be explained right out of the statute. And that's so why... So if you have the charge-off balance and then there are any other things that get added on to it after that. That's what subsection six is referring to, correct? Well, subsection, additions other than fees and charges, correct. It could be, it could be, it could be um, like I said, attorney's fees, it could be some acceleration fees, because remember this- say other than fees and charges? Well, because you've got fees and charges in 155b-4. So you've got to read 155b-4 to say- that, charge Couldn't off. that be read to mean those that are before the charge-off? 155B4, we believe it does mean before the charge-off. 155B6, well, no, 155B4 means after charge-off. 155B6 means other than fees and charges. Otherwise, you're going to read 155B5 right out of the act. And but, you're going to read word right. In, I mean, in sequence, why couldn't it just mean number four is all the charges and fees that were accrued before the charge-off, then five, the charge-off, and then six, anything after that. Because then you're ignoring the clause on 155b-5 that a charge-off balance need not be explained. And, and if, if that's the problem that needs to be confronted, to read these three together, if a charge-off balance does not need to be explained, if we don't have to tell the consumer Look, you've got a charge-off balance, but let me explain it to you. It's got this much interest, this much fees, this much additional charges. Then we've eliminated 1-55B5. So the only way to understand 4 and 6 are to be post-charge-off fees and charges and then post-charge-off additions other than fees and charges. But how, how is it possible that there would be charges after there's a charge-off balance? Well, charges doesn't mean transactions. Charges could be an interest charge, it could be a late charge, it could be, a, that's what charges means. The charges isn't defined in the act, but charges is understood in this context to be some sort of fee or charge incidental to the offering of debt. <coughs> Otherwise, it would be a transaction. But, but you, I, it seems to me, don't we also have to read this statute in connection with 50-70-115, which under um, Section 5 says that you have to, um, as a debt-buying organization, in order to bring suit, you have to have an itemized accounting of the amount claimed to be owed, including, including all fees and charges, which would mean you would need to know what, what went into that charge-off balance. Well, um, 
Respectfully, the, in 155B, the preface to 155B 5 and 6 says that this is a list of items. So a charge-off balance is one item. It does not have to be explained. There's nothing to itemize. Like we said, it is a, a series of purchases and charges and transactions and fees that then get rolled up into a principal. When that principal gets a monthly payment that does not pay it all off, then you are left with just a balance. And that balance is then rolled up into a new balance that's not itemized. When you make a payment under the federal regulations, that payment does not go to, um, to any particular charge or trans fee or purchase or cash advance. It goes to the principal. So, so that's why it's different. So when, under the regulations, we understand that once a payment is made, you don't reduce it from the sweater that's been purchased or the meal that's been bought. It goes to the whole principal, which is the entire amount that's been rolled up from the month before. Right. I, 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 I think I understand that. But my question is a little different. What I'm asking is, doesn't the, this, the, this other statute, 58-70-115, require you to know what the um, amount claimed to be owed is, including all fees and charges? At, at, so you have to know that in order to bring suit. Well, we have to, we have to know it if there's an itemization. But, but the, the balance is one item that doesn't have to be itemized under 155B5. And so we know that, and we've verified it because we've got a statement from a credit issuer. It's not just some piece of paper. We actually have a statement from the credit issuer that tells us what the balance is. And that's how that amount is verified. And because it's a balance that's been rolled up for the past six years of purchases and fees and payments and charges and interest, we know that it's just one balance and it's just one fee and it's just one item. And that's why it doesn't have to be explained anymore. To do otherwise simply is to read words that aren't in the statute. For example, the, the Court of Appeals said that we had to provide the total amount of creditor-assessed fees and charges. Whether the words total and creditor assessed are nowhere in the statute. There's nothing in the statute that says we have to put down purchases or transactions or cash advances that are being asked for. There's no, this, with respect to the itemized accounting, the plaintiff would have us read that to be an itemized accounting as if it was under Section 8 5045. But the statute doesn't say an itemized accounting. It says an itemization of the amount claimed to be owed. And the amount claimed to be owed is one amount. It's a balance. And that's why it need not go any further when, as here, we are relying on one credit card balance based upon a credit card statement issued by the credit issuer. If there was an explanation under B-5, would that be duplicative of what is in four and six? Uh, would it be just something that is surplusage because it's not required by the statute according to you, or would it be something else? Well, if you have to do four and six, then B-5 is read out of the statute. Because Does that make it duplicative? No, it, 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 it's not duplicative at all. It, well, in the sense, you, if you have to do it in B-4 and B-6, you're just reading the words need not be itemized out of the statute. That's not duplicative. That's eliminating those words. So it's surplusage. Neither. It, w w the B-5 says we don't have to explain that. And if you make us explain that, then you are doing something that the statute tells us we don't have to do. So substitute your own word then. If it's not duplicative, because it doesn't indicate what's in four and six, if it's not surplusage because it's unnecessary, then it's what? It's independent. What it, tell, what it tells us is that when you have a credit card balance on a credit card statement, that this is one item and you don't have to explain that item. There's nothing to itemize, and that's what it tells us. Otherwise, like I said, if you have to explain it under B4 and B6 and under 115.5 and 6, we have written 155.5 B5 completely out of the act. So then how do we understand 
number eight, which says that, and, it, and the statute says that it must include at least all of the following items, that it must also include then the amount of interest claimed and the basis for the interest charged. No interest was claimed and no interest was being charged. For example, you, the, the debt buyer could have charged interest on this credit card account under the credit card agreement, which in some instances be 18 or 23 percent. It's not charging any. It could have charged post-judgment interest, for example, for a breach of contract at 8 percent per annum under the statutes. It did not. No interest was being sought. No post-charge-off post fees were being sought. No post-charge-off charges were being sought. The only thing being sought was one item, a balance. So you're saying that if that charge-off balance included some amount of interest payment, you don't have to tell the consumer that under number eight? If that charge-off balance is just a balance, that's what I'm saying, it, it is a one item, and only you don't have to itemize <coughs> one item. You don't have to break that item apart because it's singular unto itself. And that's the way that rolls up into a balance. Council, you're well into your rebuttal time. I, I know, I, I see that. I'm gonna address, with, with no more questions, I wanna address one more issue, and that's the issue of actual damages. And, and regarding that, it's our view that the structure and plain reading of sections 58-70-130A and B indicate that actual damages must be incurred before a penalty can be assessed. Subsection 130A first provides for the recovery of actual damages. Subsection 130B then provides that, quote, in addition to actual damages, a plaintiff also may recover a penalty. The natural reading of these two sections is that the General Assembly allowed for punishment against a debt buyer when it has caused <coughs> damage to the debtor. This court's decision in committee to, re to elect Dan Forrest not only noted that the General Assembly can create a cause of action without actual damages, it also noted in footnote 51 that the General Assembly can require actual damages for a statutory cause of action. Showing a party falls within the class of persons, and I'm quoting now, showing a party that falls within the class of persons or for whom, on whom the statute confers a cause of action may require a showing of some special injury depending on the statutory terms. That is what the General Assembly did between 130A and B. It required actual damages. The decision of the Court of Appeals in Simmons versus Cross did not actually construe this statute. Proper construction requires that those two be read together. As the Superior Court found, plaintiff did not present any evidence of actual damages. Dismissal on this issue was appropriate, and I'd like to reserve the small balance of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon, Your Honor. May it please the Court. My name is Jason Pickler. I'm a staff attorney at the North Carolina Justice Center, and along with my colleague, Carly McNulty, we represent the appellee and plaintiff, Pia Towns. This appeal concerns the General Assembly's efforts to protect North Carolina consumers from the collection practices of debt buyers. In the Consumer Economic Protection Act of 2009, the General Assembly imposed common sense restrictions on the way debt buyers could pursue collections and obtain default judgments in North Carolina. PRA attempts to circumvent these restrictions by disregarding and altering the actual words used by the General Assembly. For example, as you heard from my friend for the defendant, the legislature's itemized accounting requirements that expressly require all fees and charges and all amounts claimed to be owed to be detailed and listed are, are whittled down by PRA into simply the charge-off balance, which somehow itemizes itself, and any post-charge-off amounts. Likewise, although this 
wasn't discussed uh, uh, by the appellant. PRA attempts to also alter the proof of ownership provision, section 150, subpart two, that expressly requires debt buyers to attach each assignment of the debt. By, uh, and, it, uh, and instead of requiring each assignment, PRA wants to add an exception to that plain language uh, for intra-corporate transfers. We respectfully urge this court to affirm the unanimous decision of the Court of Appeals, which correctly ruled that Ms. Towns was entitled to summary judgment as to each of her claims. Now, uh, I would like to start um, with all of the, uh, the questions about Section 155, uh, because that is where <laughs> the action is here today. Um, and um, there was a lot of back and forth about Section 155B5, and, and uh, my friend for PRA um, kept quoting the language, but uh, you know, as I suggested in my opening, altering the language. And I think it's important to drill down exactly on how that language is being altered uh, by PRA. So if we look again at Section 155B5, it says uh, as one of the items that needs to be provided uh, using authenticated, properly authenticated evidence, uh, one of the items is the original charge-off balance, or if the balance has not been charged off, an explanation of how the balance was calculated. Now, note that that doesn't say itemization. And it also doesn't say that a charged-off debt need not be explained. That is an inversion of the language that PRA is uh, adding to the language. It doesn't say the original charge-off balance need not be explained. And it certainly does not say the charge-off balance need not be itemized. Where is that in the language? It says rather that if you don't have a charged-off debt, you, debt buyer, need to provide authenticated business records that will provide an explanation of how the balance was calculated. If the General Assembly had intended to say itemization, it knew how to say that. It says it in B4. It uses that language in B6. Well, let me ask you about how does subsection 4 relate to subsection 5 in your view? Yes. Well, um, so uh, my friend for the other side noted in 155B, the last sentence, it says the authenticated business records shall include at least all of the following items. All vitally important here, because it very much disrupts and contravenes PRA's argument that the charge-off balance is the single item that itemizes itself. Because you have to provide all of the items, which includes before an itemization of, uh, an itemization of charges and fees claimed to be owed, and B, the original charge-off balance. Now those aren't necessarily the same item, are they same amount? Uh, they're, they're, not the, 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 they're not the same item. They can't be the same item. Otherwise, as, as Your Honor noted, you would be reading before out of the statute. If the charge-off balance is an itemization, as PRA is claiming here, if the original charge-off balance is an itemization, then how can you also provide an itemization of, of charges and fees claimed to be owed? You need to provide all of the items. That's what the statute says. But under PRA's theory, the itemization of charges and fees claimed to be owed is written out of the statute. Now, PRA's argument there is that, no, it's not written out because you have to add the words post-charge-off in there. So it should read instead an itemization of post-charge-off charges and fees claimed to be owed. But that runs into uh, your canon of statutory interpretation that says that when uh, the General Assembly chooses to use a word in one part of a statute and then chooses not to use that word in another part of the same statute, that exclusion and inclusion of language is intentional. If the General Assembly had only wanted before to apply to post-charge-off charges and fees, why didn't it say post-charge-off charges and fees? It didn't use that word there, and that is 
a great signal to us that that isn't the way the statute should be read. Instead, uh, as Justice Hudson pointed out, it is read as a list. And you go down that list uh, and providing all of the following evidence. Number four is an itemization of the charges and fees claimed to be owed. In context, that comes right before the original charge-off balance. And you need to provide both. You need to provide an itemization of the charges and fees claimed to be owed. Then, if the debt has been charged off, evidence of the charge-off balance. And then, if you've added charges and fees, Mr. Debt Buyer, you need to itemize those charges and fees that you've added. Now, the uh, explanation of B6 that we've received is that somehow the word additions, which if you look it up in the dictionary would be the most expansive word that you could possibly use there, it means anything that you've added, somehow gets reduced to only meaning, well, it's not really clear what, it's not charges and fees we've heard, but when he tries to explain what it would be, he talks about service charges and attorney's fees. Aren't service charges a charge? Aren't attorney's fees a fee? I, I haven't heard yet one example of something that would fit under 155B6. Uh, it, uh, and I think the, the obvious explanation is that their reading of the statute is implausible. 155B6 applies to any, anything added to the charge-off balance, whether that be a charge, whether it be a fee, whether they want to call that collection cost, which under Section 115 uh, Subdivision 2 is also called a charge. But whatever, whatever you want to add to the, the charge-off balance, that goes under 155B6. So let me ask you this. You probably see this kind of paper fairly often and maybe can tell me this. Is, is it typical or frequent to have an itemization of charges and fees claimed to be owed under subsection four that were owed at some point. I don't know at what point. Um, and then a number five, a charge off balance that is different from what was owed that's listed in subsection four, where they don't charge off the entire amount or some amount has been paid or something. Can that happen? Uh, I'm not sure I, understand your question, Justice Hudson, I apologize. I guess my question is, are, are subsection four, the itemization of charges and fees, and number five, the charge-off balance, the same? Mm. Well, Can they be different? Um, I, I think what the statute was trying to do, Your Honor, is, is make them, uh, so uh, when a debt buyer seeks to collect on the charge-off balance, they need to provide authenticated business records to prove that charge-off balance, but they also need to provide an itemization of the charges and fees that make up the charge-off balance. So they would be connected in the sense that the, the charges and fees that are itemized should total the uh, charge-off balance. If they don't, there's a discrepancy, a problem, and that's the reason why we have these statutes. And uh, Justice Earls pointed out we need to read these in pari materia with section 115. Uh, now, again, PRA in its briefing and at oral argument, they want to focus entirely on two words in section 155. They want, to, they want to focus on the word item, even though, again, as we explained in our brief, the word item could mean a discrete part of an accounting, but its more general sense is a discrete part of an enumeration, a list. And we have a list here, items one through eight. It is a, an enumeration. It is not an accounting. So the fact that the charge-off balance is called an item, who cares? It's a discrete part of this list. It doesn't mean that the legislature meant, oh, by the way, we're going to secretly tell you that the charge-off balance is, doesn't need to be itemized because we're calling it an item. Wink, wink. No, that is not what the legislature did here. Uh, now, another reason why this isn't an item a, a single item, which is a, another huge part of their argument, is saying, we purchase one item, okay? We don't, the statute wasn't going to look at the subjective viewpoint of the debt buyer. Tell us, what do you think you've purchased here? Do you, do you think you've purchased 100 items or one item? It's not a subjective, there's no mens rea requirement here. It is a objective standard 
set out in party material with section 115.5, which says that debt buyer, before you start collecting on the debt, you need to have a reasonable verification of the amount of the debt allegedly owed by the debtor. And in its first draft, that's all it said, just reasonable verification. And if it remained that way, well then PRA could argue, well, what is a reasonable verification? Maybe it's just providing one charge off statement. Why not? That could be reasonable. But the, the legislature didn't stop there. In a Senate subcommittee further draft, they added the further language of 115 subdivision five, which says that for purposes of this subdivision, reasonable verification shall include a bunch of stuff. And at the end of it, it's an itemized accounting of the amount claimed to be owed, including all fees and charges. Now, it's important to drill down on that, that the language there, the actual words used, okay? So, well, first of all, when does this reasonable verification happen? It, we're told that it's before the debt buyer brings suit or otherwise attempts to collect on the debt. So they're supposed to have this verification before they've started to do any work, before they've started to collect. So that will tell you that this stat statutory provision is designed to require a debt buy buyer to verify the debt before they've added charges and fees post charge off. This, this is asking the debt buyer for an itemization of the debt they've purchased. So if they purchased a charge off balance, if they've purchased a charge off debt rather, and they're claiming that as the amount claimed to be owed, that's what you need to itemize. Do you agree that part five is, applies generally, not just to credit card debt buyers? It, yes, it applies to uh, credit card debt. It applies to any debt that is purchased by a debt buyer. Uh, it says collection agencies as well. Um, and you don't disagree that depending on the industry, credit cards, banks, private lenders, that uh, different creditors will calculate um, uh, outstanding balances differently, correct? Yes, I think you're, you're correct. I mean, in this instance, credit cards, they apparently do a rolling balance. And for my next couple of questions, I'm looking at pages 66 through 69 of the record. So these were the credit card statements, which folks as old as I am are used to seeing credit card statements. Um, and it starts with a previous balance. Now that previous balance doesn't tell us how much of that resulted from cash advances. It doesn't tell us how much of that previous balance came from purchase of goods. It doesn't tell us how much um, in, in that previous balance statement may have been uh, interest, uh, late payment fees, um, other aspects. Now, if we read on through the statement, we see that uh, it talks about if there was a payment, it talks about interest paid on cash advances and purchases and interest paid today. So when we look at this, this statement in and of itself doesn't tell us how much of the current balance, this is apparently in March of 2012, or May, excuse me, May of 2012. Uh, it doesn't tell us what happened before that, correct? Exactly. Okay. And so then when you turn over to the next page and you get to the December portion of that, uh, once again, it has rolled into the balance uh, whatever fees, uh, charges, uh, uh, late payment assessments, whatever. Uh, but all of this information is consistent with federal law that federal law requires to be uh, shown to a debtor with a credit card statement, right? Yes, exactly. So why isn't this information that is required by federal law, why isn't this adequate 
to comply with the provisions of our state statute, or at least why shouldn't we at least review our state statute as it deals with credit card debts, a limited part of the debts that are being collected under this, credit card debts. Why isn't this information adequate? Well, Your Honor, it's not adequate because, uh, and, I, and I don't mean this flippantly, it's because the plain language of our statutes tells us it's not adequate. Uh, instead of saying, you know, um, if a debt buyer complies with, uh, if they obtain a statement that complies with federal regulations, you don't need to do an itemization of the charges and fees that make up the amount claimed to be owed. That would tell us, okay, the General Assembly was really thinking about these federal regulations, at least when they pertain to credit card debt, and they're, they're setting that as our standard. But instead, the General Assembly, well aware that these federal regulations that protect consumers by forcing a creditor to disclose by a monthly amount the transactions that occur in a credit card amount, credit card, uh, that those, that isn't the standard that we need when a debt buyer moves in who purchases the debt for an average of four cents on the dollar, who uh, is um, based on state regulators, federal regulators, is often obtaining inaccurate and unreliable information and, and obtaining default judgments. Is, is that information part of this record? It, it is, Your Honor. We, we attached, um, as part of the record on appeal, the CFPB consent order that they obtained against PRA in 2015. We talk extensively about the FTC 2009 report, which came out a month before the General Assembly started crafting this legislation, where the FTC laid out in, in detail that debt buyers and other debt collectors are not obtaining sufficient information from creditors when they start collecting on the debts. And as a result, there's, uh, the consumers are confused about what they owe, their uh, debt collectors are suing on the wrong amounts. And the FTC in 2009, a month before the General Assembly started crafting these leg this legislation, said, you know, and by the way, they would have been aware of credit card regulations as well, the federal regulations, right? But they, they said, that's not good enough. For, for, for debt buyers and other debt collectors who are purchasing charged off credit card debts, we need them to have more information before they start collecting. So the FTC recommended to Congress amend the FDCPA, the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act, to require an itemization of the debt. And, that, and also they said, and require the debt buyer, debt collector, to send that itemization to the debtor right away as your first communication. So uh, I, would, I would think that our statutes, if they're influenced by any kind of federal stuff in the, in the background, it's more likely that they were influenced by the FTC report, which directly pertains to debt collection, rather than the federal regulations that relate to how a credit card is uh, calculated uh, by the original creditor on an active account. Debt collection is a different matter. It's when the debt has been sold, do we trust the debt collector to have the, the accurate information? Well, let's, let's talk about that here. The original charge-off balance, as alleged by the plaintiff, or excuse me, by the defendant now, but in its collection action is uh, the new balance uh, that is shown on page 68 of the record, correct? Uh, so that, that is uh, page 68, it contains the, the final balance, is that your question? Yes. Uh, yeah, according to, it appears that this was the final balance. I would direct you though to the page 77 of the record on appeal, which is the electronic data that PRA purportedly received from the account seller and uh, it's this uh, kind of bewildering spreadsheet, but towards the end of it, you might see CHG underscore off, charge it, it, it with the number 1354.65. I asked PRA's 30B6 representative in deposition, 
what does CHG underscore off mean? And she responded, oh, that's the charge off. That's the charge off balance. I said, oh, interesting. It says the balance is 13.54 and 65 cents. Is that how much you're claiming is owed? She said, no, we are claiming 1866.90 is owed. So I said, hmm, that's interesting. So the charge off balance according to the data you receive from the account seller says one thing for the charge off balance, but the statement you're relying on says a different number. And, uh, and she said, well, we, I don't really know because th these aren't my records. This, this isn't PRA's records. So a couple of issues there. First of all, this is the reason why we need an itemized accounting. Again, the documentation, electronic records, other documentation received by debt buyers is notoriously unreliable. I mean, don't take my word for it. Read the amicus brief that was submitted by the Attorney General talking ad nauseum about all of the actions that have been taken against debt buyers in the decade leading up to the passage of this act. Uh, uh, or the amicus brief of uh, the legal services organizations that also talks about abuses by debt buyers. Uh, the General Assembly had a reason to target debt buyers and to force them to prove up their claim. It's because of this kind of discrepancy that was commonplace among the records of, of debt buyers. So that's one thing. And the second thing goes to the authenticated business records issue, which was our conditional uh, a PDR, to say even though the Court of Appeals didn't address this issue, that uh, it would be important to also consider what is required for properly authenticated business records. Here, the PRA 30B6 representative said, you know, these aren't our records. We don't know why there's a discrepancy here between the charge off and the statement balance. We don't know why. Well, that's why the debt buyer shouldn't be authenticating purported business records. It's not their records. They can't attest to the reliability of the records. They don't know. So that's why it's important when, uh, you know, particularly in the debt buyer context, that, that we reaffirm the North Carolina standard for authenticating a business record, which is that the, you have a witness or qualify, uh, a custodian or qualifying witness who has familiarity with the record and the system under which it's made. The PRA 30B6 witness certainly did not. It's not our record, we don't know. The PRA custodian who submitted an affidavit in support of the motion for default judgment, he referred to business records but didn't state any fact that would show that he's familiar with any of the record. And of course he didn't attach any records to his, his affidavit, which would be necessary in order to authenticate a record as a business record. And finally, Chelsea Ullman, their, the collections attorney, just says that I'm testifying on, uh, as an attorney for a PRA. She doesn't state any fact that would show that she has any familiarity with the records she's possibly purporting to authenticate. And in fact, her affidavit is riddled with errors. She claims that HSBC was the entity that charged off the debt when the records show it was Capital One. So she doesn't have familiarity with the records or the system. She doesn't even know which entity charged off the debt or provided the records to PRA. So that, okay. let, me, let me shift gears for yes. just a minute. I wanted to make sure that you um, address the actual damages yes. argument, um, at least briefly. Thank you, Your Honor. So again, the, this, this is the same issue as with all the other issues before us, PRA is attempting to alter the actual words and, and that are used. In section 130, uh, 130A says that any collection agency which violates part three of this article, which is, uh, in, includes section 115 and section 115 subdivision seven, then loops in uh, part five, which so all of our claims are fall under part three. Um, so any collection agency which violates part three with respect to any debtor shall be liable to that debtor in an amount equal to the sum of any actual damages. Subpart B then says the same pre preamble and, it's, and, and notice that it says any debtor, any debtor shall in addition to actual damages 
also be liable to the debtor for a penalty. So the most natural reading of that language is that any debtor shall receive a penalty if the law has been violated against them. Any debtor. It doesn't say, as it would have to, in order for PRA's argument to, to withstand scrutiny, any debtor who has suffered loss, any debtor who has suffered actual damages. And doesn't say that, <clears throat> excuse me, it just says any debtor. The well, purpose, I'm sorry. My understanding of the argument of your um, esteemed opposition is that um, saying in addition to actual damages means that there have to have been some actual damages to add to. And tell me why that is not a reasonable interpretation of that. Okay, well, the reasonable uh, interpretation of that language is that uh, a debtor does not have to choose between the remedies. If they have any actual damages, they get those, and in addition, they get the penalty. But you don't have to choose. The, they're cumulative. The, the remedy is cumulative. And that's and, subsection D. Uh, and that is uh, spelled out also in, in subsection D. Um, and this is language that is found in other statutory provisions, the in addition to language. Um, again, the amicus brief for the Attorney General pointed out that a UCC provision also has the same in addition to actual damages language and has been interpreted as not requiring the actual damages in order to obtain the statutory penalty. But we also have to look at the purpose of, of this, of the statute. We need to look at the purpose. This is the enforcement mechanism that, that debtors have. There aren't other ways to effectuate the purpose of these statutes. There's no, judges aren't allowed to sua sponte, uh, you know, um, knock a debt, a debt buyer for failing to comply with the statutes. The only way to enforce these, these statutes is through a civil liability lawsuit by a debtor. And if you're going to take away that ability for everyone who doesn't have actual damages, you're giving free reign to the debt, debt buyers to, to run rampant and, and to uh, have impunity. Because it's not always easy for a debtor to claim actual damages. Look at Ms. Simmons in the Simmons case. Her, the, the violation there was that the debt collector uh, contacted her when they knew she was represented by counsel. Hard to prove the damage there. That, and, and as Chief Justice Newby noted in the Dan Forrest case, uh, ch uh, the Chapter 75, Article 2 statutory remedy, which was amended by the legislature in the Consumer Economic Protection Act of 2009, to read similarly as 130, it doesn't require actual damages. It doesn't require actual damages because the importance is to allow any debtor who has suffered the violation to vindicate their rights and not force them uh, to, to prove the actual damages. I see my time is running down. Are there any other questions that I need to get to urgently? If, if not, I, I thank the court for its attention. And I, I urge an affirmance. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. May it please the court. <clears throat> we have to acknowledge the existence of section 155B5 that a charge off balance as reflected in a charge-off statement has to mean something. And that is, it's one item that need not be explained. Here, Portfolio Recovery had a federally regulated document. It had a federally came from a federally regulated institution. Portfolio Recovery sought to collect only that balance, an amount that plaintiff has admitted that she owed. If Section 155 means anything, it means that this was sufficient to comply with the Act. If portfolio recovery sought to recover post-charge-off fees, charges, or additions, then it needed to itemize those, but it did not. So in this case, would it have been the charge-off balance that the records showed that were purchased or that the witness testified to when they were apparently Port different? Portfolio recovery provided the card credit card statement as a charge-off balance. And that's what it relied on, and that's what it sent under 155, 115.5. That's what it attached to its complaint under 115.6, and that's what it is seeking now, what it sought then, 
And that's what it's relied on. No, that's all it's relied on throughout the litigation, Your Honor. The, um, we, the, the, the records custodian did not identify and the 30B6 did not know what that was, but that was not what was provided with the notice. What, the, what PRA has only sought was to charge off balance in the statement. Briefly, I want to address the authentication requirement. In State v. Wilson, this court held that the business records exception to the hearsay rule can be satisfied by evidence of circum by circumstantial evidence. In this instance, we have sufficient guarantees of circumstantial evidence. For example, we have a credit card statement prepared by the credit issuer. They were provided by credible federal regulations, and it had plaintiffs identifying information such as her name, address, account number, and things like that. Finally, Your Honor, we request that this court reverse this decision of the Court of Appeals and remand to the Superior Court for entry of judgment for PRA. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, everyone. See you. I said, you're back to our homes.